You are tuned in to episode three of Sound Science with me, your host, Yuante Pierce. We're all familiar with the idea that we should be getting an average of eight hours sleep a night, but we're not all as sure as to why. And for some of us, the value we place on a good night's sleep is trumped by the value we place on the underground music scenes that have thrived on us staying up all night, nourishing us in a very different way. Welcome to this month's episode of Sound Science, the science of sleep and rave culture. In the first part of the show, I'll be talking about the neuroscience behind sleep. I'll also be talking to Dr. Russell Foster from the University of Oxford about sleep health and the impact of our nocturnal shenanigans. In the second half of the show, I'll be playing tribute to legendary New York club night Paradise Garage and chatting with my good friend Adam Cooper about the tradition of the nighttime Trinidadian celebration Juve. How are we going to get this into one hour? I don't know. So let us begin. It's time to introduce my first guest, Dr. Russell Foster, head of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology and the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute at Oxford University. Welcome to Sound Science. Thank you so much for coming on the show. So this month's episode is all about the importance of sleep and how despite this, many music lovers will gladly forego it for the love of music scenes which thrive at night. Research shows that sleep has an undeniable plethora of benefits. Much of this research is centered on the striking importance of sleep in memory processing, but there is also research showing its importance in everything from boosting creativity, making you feel happier, less depressed and anxious, controlling your weight and increasing your attractiveness, to more serious things like warding off colds and flu and protecting against diabetes, stroke, heart attack, cancer and dementia. So clearly getting enough sleep is really important, but can we maintain good sleep health whilst also enjoying a rich nighttime music scene too? So a lot of your research centers on the mechanisms whereby light regulates vertebrate circadian rhythms and how interruptions to the system affect human performance, productivity, and health. So that's where you come in. I have a few questions with you, if that's okay. There's a natural dip in alertness around midday when culturally some people would take a little nap called a siesta, and that's proved to be beneficial. But could you take advantage of naps like this later in the day? For example, the concept of a disco nap, where say at 8 p.m. you could take an hour of sleep and then you could go out until 4 a.m. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's a couple of important points about naps. Is that, generally speaking, a, a relatively short nap of, let's say, 20 minutes is is usually a good thing. So a nap in the early afternoon uh, of about 20 minutes can make you more effective uh, during the second half of the day. If the nap is longer than 20 minutes or so, you can fall into deeper sleep. And then the recovery from deeper sleep means that you are left somewhat groggy, there's a lot of sleep inertia, and can counteract the, the positive aspects of a nap. So short naps can be useful, but the problem about napping is that it will disturb your sleep-wake timing at night. So there are two really important factors that regulate sleep-wake timing. There's the body clock saying now is a good time to be asleep and now is a good time to be awake. And the second is called the sleep pressure. Um, And and it's it's an easy concept because it's basically the longer you're awake, the greater the need for sleep. And what the nap will do is push back the need for sleep. So a, a nap, particularly if it's 
late in the day will hugely push back the need for sleep in the evening. Now, you may want that, and, and that may be useful if you're planning to stay up all night. So, rule of thumb, short nap can be useful, long nap uh, can be counterproductive, um, but naps, even if they're short, will push back the time you'll need to sleep in the evening and at night. Yeah, so a disco nap could be quite useful to allow you to stay awake throughout the uh, the night. As I say, there are dangers, but but if you know needs must. If you need to be awake, then a nap can help. I've read that it's not just how many hours that is important, but the type of sleep that you're getting. So, for example, NREM versus REM sleep. So the idea of catching up on sleep. Can you catch up on lost sleep after staying up all night? In other words, just shifting things forward six to eight hours and still get the same quality of sleep. There's, I think the first point to make is that there's a huge amount of individual difference about how much sleep we all need. Uh, some people can get away with six hours uh, and be moderately effective. Some people need nine. And the first key thing is that you assess your own sleep needs and you then try and prioritize and defend your sleep needs. The issue about REM versus non-REM, there's a lot of misinformation about this. We tend to have more non-REM sleep during the first half of the sleep episode and more REM sleep during the second half of the sleep episode. It's not absolutely clear what non-REM versus REM sleep is providing. The consensus would be that non-REM sleep is probably best for information processing and memory consolidation, whereas REM sleep is for emotional processing. To get the full benefits of sleep, and, and, and it's worth emphasizing that so much of our ability to function during the day is dependent upon a good night of sleep. So to get the full benefits of sleep, an extended sleep episode consisting of an appropriate amount of non-REM and REM sleep is, is a good thing. What about catching up? It's surprising how long it does take to catch up on restricted sleep. So if you are chronically sleep deprived during the week for whatever reason, the weekend is usually not long enough to catch up fully on your sleep need. And that can take several days. And it's, and it's a problem because of course, it's the biological clock and the sleep need, the sleep pressure need to be, you know, usually perfectly aligned. And the clock will start to say in the morning, well, it's time you woke up, even if the sleep uh, pressure is very high. So, so you tend never to fully catch up over the weekends, and it takes um, much longer. How long it takes will depend upon the, the individual and, and how chronically sleep deprived you are. See, and also to add to that, your brain, in terms of memory processing, needs to go through the process every day to take in new memories and that's where there's a long-term story. So let's say you stay up all night, one night, does that mean that you're losing the opportunity to consolidate those memories that evening and so even catching up does yeah. have a negative effect because you're not going to actually yeah, be able to process those so, memories? So, so the data are fairly clear on that, it, it, is that if you don't get a good night of sleep, the night following taking in lots of information, your ability to remember that information will be hugely impaired. And it's not just the retention of facts. First of all, your state of tiredness will influence the sorts of emotional um, stuff you'll remember. So tired people will tend to remember the bad stuff, so you'll have a negative focus if you're tired. And the other thing is it's not just the retention of information. It's whilst we're asleep, the brain is processing information. And so a night of sleep has been shown in a number of really wonderful experiments 
to enable you to come up with those novel solutions to complicated problems. So it's information processing and the retention of facts that's going on at night during sleep, and both of them are very substantially hit with uh, a poor night of sleep. So my final yeah. question is, what are the long-term effects of consistently staying up all night for the kind of nocturnal patterns we're talking about here in this podcast, is staying up all night once or twice a week? Yeah. So, so I guess there are three levels of um, of impact. If you're, if it's short-term sleep disruption um, of the sort that many of us encounter, and the sort that you're describing of sort of sleep disruption a couple of times a week, then what you would expect to see is a drop in your ability to process information, your uh, ability to remember information. You'll see an increase in impulsivity. You'll tend to do uh, more stupid and unreflective things. You'll also see a drop in empathy and a failure to pick up the social signals in your friends and, and your family. And so they are the immediate and short-term effects. You might also see increased levels of hunger because we do know that after relatively short-term sleep disruption, the hunger hormone ghrelin can go up. You'll seek out carbohydrates and sugar-rich substances. There's also some evidence which suggests that even relatively short-term sleep disruption will suppress immunity. So one night of no sleep, for example, uh, will reduce the efficacy of natural killer cells, one of those really important parts of the immune system, by around about 27%. So those are all short-term effects. If you then move to the longer-term effects, as you see in night shift workers who've been on the night shift for 5, 10, 15 and, and 20 years, then you start to get the big health impacts of diabetes 2, metabolic abnormalities, obesity, um, coronary heart disease, and increased risk of cancer. But whether it's short-term or long-term sleep disruption, if you are vulnerable to mental health problems such as anxiety or other sorts of mood disorders, or indeed if you have schizophrenia or bipolar, sleep disruption can hugely increase your chances of increasing the severity of some of those symptoms. You're more likely to show anxiety and depression with even relatively small amounts of sleep disruption compared to normal and sustained sleep. So there are both short-term and long-term effects, and I think it's really important that people are aware of these effects, and so if they see themselves sliding into a depressive state, then one way to try and correct that is to try and prioritize and, and, and enhance one's sleep. Can I summarize from that that you can maintain good sleep health whilst enjoying a rich nighttime music scene, but you need to be aware of the long-term effects of consistently staying up all night. So perhaps maybe staying up all night once a week if you're napping yeah. and you're, cu- you're catching up on sleep might offset yeah. those effects. But be aware the day after that um, significant loss of sleep that you will not be able to process information, your social interaction will fall off, your ability to drive a car will, you know, not be great. So you're more likely to have an accident or think you can get through that red traffic light when you can't. And the other really important thing, even with relatively short-term sleep loss, 
the brain is so tired it can't detect how tired it is and so you may think you're fine but actually you're not and so the brain the tired brain is really good at tricking you into thinking it's functioning fine but in actuality it really is not so you need to be very careful the day following a, a night of limited sleep on a, don't make important decisions don't make um, uh, you know don't try not to have arguments um, and perhaps uh, if you if you need to drive a car be very careful and be aware that you're you're less likely to, to drive that car carefully or efficiently but of course if you are having I mean a re repeated short-term sleep then it's worth being aware that you might want to have high frequency health checks I mean in young people it's not so, so dangerous but as you reach middle age and start checking yourself for obesity start checking yourself for diabetes 2 and maybe think about higher frequency health checks you know for blood pressure you know, cardiovascular disease and even higher frequency health checks for cancer that was incredibly illuminating dr foster thank you so much for speaking with me and just educating us a bit more about how we can maintain good sleep health and some of those consequences i know that you're a very busy man so i'll let you go um but thanks again great pleasure thank you for the interview For me, sleep has always been a negotiable, a stock of idle time that you can tap into when necessary. Without that stock of spare time, I wouldn't have passed an exam or two, that's for sure. And that stock of spare time has also been for me where I learned about music, where many special friendships were forged. A space that existed between midnight and sunrise where some of my favorite memories were created. I'm talking about my own experience of a music scene that dominated and defined my 20s. An important pillar of that music community at the time was a place called Plastic People in Old Street, London, where I danced and for a period where I worked. Sadly, Plastic People shut down in 2015, but to this day, people still talk about it. It was a modest venue where the dance floor was sometimes almost pitch black except for a red light above the DJ booth, where the smell of incense was commonplace and where the sound system was completely unrivaled. Affection for a lost venue like Plastic People that in the daylight appeared unremarkable is an echo from the past where it all began. I'm going to tell you about walking into an oasis. And feeling like I just walked into my family's living room. It was more than just walking into their living room. It was about completely being safe from the social restrictions of the outside. Everything that the moral majority told you you couldn't do, it didn't exist anymore. It was, it was a family that had only one rule, to love thy brother. And that was okay when I think about this oasis, this place of total freedom, I can't help but feel like I lost a part of myself, a part of my family. That's why, that's why it's not about the space itself, it's about the community that's inside the space that helps you bring you back to that, that moment. When you DJ and everybody involved. It was you and them 
against the world. And we survive together. That was a clip from the 2003 documentary Maestro about the inception of a secret underground music scene in 70s New York. Maestro tells the story of how a group of people found refuge outside of the mainstream. And it was an underground club because nobody, it was like a secret network. It was very much underground. No publicity about it. It was word of mouth. I know about it. I tell him, he passed it on. And that's how it grew. for me was the music. The yeah. music was yeah. off the meters. There was yeah. nobody playing the music yeah. like Larry the Band and especially the wall. The club got so underground that people would, people would lauder outside the club like prostitutes waiting for people with memberships. Waiting. You would have people paying you if you had a membership to get in that club. The film features pioneer dance music DJs and producers. The founding fathers, Nicky Siano, Larry Levan, and David Mancudio, and gives a rare insight into the parties they created. The gallery to Paradise Garage and The Loft. These parties were more than just parties. Music genres and styles of dance were born at these parties. Mixing records was arguably conceived at these parties. Social groups that in the outside world remained separate came together at these parties, breaking down social boundaries. In the place of sleep was progress. Why people talk about it? It's because it was special. Because Michael didn't count the... It wasn't the balance sheet. It was giving the people the best possible party. So many kids at the garage told me that the garage saved their life from going, saved them from going bad because they had a place to get rid of their stress. It was very important to a lot of people. A lot of people had stress, a lot of people had problems, had nowhere to go, and you would go to the garage, release so much energy. When you left that club, you was, you was in paradise. The loft is a feeling. I don't even know how to go out anymore because in some ways I'm still looking for that, you know, and it's just, it ain't happening. For me, I haven't found, you know, I haven't found another DJ yet that has moved me. The way David Mancuso has moved me. I can find a space today, but the overhead, what is that going to mean? Is people in a what, lesser or less money could be able to afford to come in? As with people with more money, I can't go into a situation like that. It has to be something that can be affordable. It's there. You might, I mean, now it's getting harder and harder to do that in Manhattan. Only if I had something I was going where I could afford to, to support it, then I wouldn't mind doing it. I've done that from time to time for the law many years ago. Uh, so it has to be, the, again, if you can mix the economical groups together, that's where you have social progress. That's very important to me. Larry influenced so many different people. He brought cultures together, black, white, Hispanic, gay, straight. He brought women and men closer together, too. You had to learn how to relate and deal with different people that maybe you was told not to you know, that they shouldn't be a part of your life. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in this place and you're listening to the best music you've ever heard in your life. And everyone's coming together. It had gotten where everyone 
had found themselves because they was hanging out in this place where you could be yourself and you could be fabulous. One of my favourite parts of the documentary is where One Paradise Garage regular describes hearing one particular track. Soup is definitely the last thing on his mind and to be honest, with similar memories of my own, I don't blame him. One of the things I, I want to share about a musical experience I had at the, um, at the garage that I'll never forget was he was playing, um, he was playing Release by Lee, and yo, the crowd was going crazy, I'll never forget this, the crowd was just going crazy, and it was like, Release Yourself, Release, everybody screaming, and then he had, like, this big screen, and he had the beginning part of when doves cry, and he had the dove, and, it, and the music going like, Release Yourself, and you see the dove crashing through the doors, and it's like, and then it go right back in, and the doors are shut, and be like, release yourself, and he did this for a long time, to the point where everybody started screaming, and it, it was like, at the same time, cause we was all bugging, looking at it, like, let it go, let it go, because he's a bird, wanted to get released, you know what I'm saying? Yo, it was crazy, man, it was just beautiful to watch, you know, and I was just like, and watches like let it, let it fly, let it go, release it, release it, and then all of a sudden he just went bang and crash, and it was like don't don't you know when doves cry, yo it was amazing man, it was amazing, I'll never forget that. That's what I remember Larry Lamar for music. Changing gears now, I want to explore a tradition with music at its foundation that goes way back in one part of the world and is still upheld with pride today, not only by those in the place of origin, but by the diaspora too. It's time to introduce a very special guest who goes by the name Foreigner, aka Adam Cooper, aka honestly one of the best humans you'll ever meet. Uh, we met within the first few months of me moving to LA back in 2016. I remember the night, and um, he told me about a party that he put on with a dancer slash choreographer slash DJ called Samantha Blake, aka Monica, and a wicked musician called Kelman Duran. And I remember going to the first one and being like, yes, I have found it. It's that magical party where everyone is connected by the music and a love of dance, a party with soul, a party called Rail Up, um, which is a party well worth losing a few hours of sleep. Now, Adam has started another party called Junkyard Juve that is rooted in a Trinidadian tradition where sleep is completely forfeit. Adam, welcome to Sound Science. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I've talked a little bit about Rail Up, uh, but you're an incredibly busy man, so hardworking, with fingers in many, many pots. So could we just start by you telling the audience a little bit about what those pots are? My name is Adam Cooper. That's my government name. But people, you know, in the music and party scene know me best as Foreigner. Foreigner is my creative moniker for me being a DJ, the events that I put on, and a designer. The party that kind of exposed me to the rest of LA was Rail Up. It's a party that I produce in partnership with Samantha Blake Goodman. Her DJ name is Muñeca, uh, and Kelman Duran, incredible producer from New York City, but uh, Dominican by roots. 
And, you know, I've been doing parties for a while. That's how I met Samantha. She came to a party at one of my places down in uh, downtown L.A. Met one of my friends there. You know, they became really good friends. And then he, she basically asked him, hey, do you know any DJs that play soca, kuduro, all of these different types of music? And I connected with her through the parties that I was throwing a while back. And now I started kind of venturing out from Rail Up and exploring some of the things that are much closer to my identity as Trinidadian man. Right. Raised in Venezuela and New York City. And uh, one of those things that really, really speak to me on a spiritual and an entertainment level is Juve. What does Juve mean and where does it come from? Juve is actually a broken French term. It actually stands for Juve, opening day. It's a Trinidadian carnival ritual to open the carnival celebrations. Okay, so it, kind of, it originates from Trinidad? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's Trinidadian. And there are other manifestations of Juve that you see in various parts of the Caribbean that have their own kind of nuances that make it very, very Grenadian or Bayesian or Vinci. But Trinidadian Juve is special because, you know, it's, we, 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 we really get into the spirit and it has a lot to do with the history of emancipation. It has a lot to do with the history of rebellion and pushing back against white colonial powers that were threatened by black celebration, threatened by Indian celebration, threatened by other spirituality that, that's not Catholic or not Christian. There's certain parts of Juve that are rooted in the Cambule riots. It was essentially a, a situation where the police, the governor of Trinidad and Tobago at the time, came in with brutal force to stop the carnival celebrations. And it was essentially one of the first examples of racial solidarity across mm -hmm. the working class in Trinidad and Tobago. Indian and black people really came together to fight this colonial power that was trying to stop them expressing their identities and expressing themselves as Indo and Afro Trinidadian people. Educate me just a little bit. How did Carnival end up in Trinidad? It's a Catholic ritual mm -hmm. that um, I think was introduced to Trinidad in late 1700s, early 1800s okay. by the French. Mm -hmm. And black people and, and people of Indi East Indian descent took a lot of these carnival festivities and added their own spin to it. Trinidad uh, was one of the only places where people who were either indentured servants or who were enslaved, carnival was the only time that they were allowed to actually Got be it. free. And they didn't like the spin. <laughs> well, they didn't like the spin. And as you know, you know, as you know, the drum was a very threatening thing mm -hmm. to white people, yeah. especially in the wake of the Haitian Revolution. Mm -hmm. You know, they were spooked. And it's, there's evidence now that the drum was actually a form of, of, of code for black people, you know, communicating across distance or maybe even sharing messages between maroons and so on. Mm -hmm. So they were right to be scared of the drum. But then in addition to that, the tradition of Juve came about where, one, it was just about being free and being wild, you know, using mud and pitch oil to cover your body mm -hmm. and really go into character. And there are also several carnival characters that people play. There's the Jab Jab or the Jab Molassi, which is, you know, Jab is another broken French term for Diable, which is devil. Mm -hmm. So the last Junkyard Juve, which I'll get into, was along the lines of the theme of Jab Jab portraying the devil. 
and then also um, along the lines of rebellion, covering and smearing your face and body with oil and mud concealed your identity while you were out. You oh, know, got it. Okay. Doing the things that disturb mm-hmm. the colonial systems in place. Yeah. So Juve really does have that duality of emancipation and freedom, but also of like high energy early morning celebration. One thing I failed to mention is that Juve takes place at the crack of dawn on the Monday morning of Carnival. So you, you don't hit the streets with Juve until 3 a.m. You know, if you want to be fashionably late, you get to <laughs> 5 a.m. Yeah. And you essentially, as far as the Carnival ritual is concerned, in the streets, marching in the streets with these either live DJs on trucks or steel bands or just straight, you know, improvised instruments that people have beaten. And you're in the streets marching from, you know, under the the darkness of the morning until the sun rises. You know, it's the opening day Mm -hmm. of Carnival Mm -hmm. that belongs to the people. You know, it's not the what what they call pretty mats with, you know, beads and feathers and highly intricate costumes that people took months to make. Juve is really the rawest, like, common denominator for, for all Carnival revelers. And the places that do it properly, as far as tradition is concerned, outside of Trinidad, are London and New York. London and New York were the first carnivals, essentially outside of right. the first Caribbean carnivals outside of Trinidad. And uh, I was I went to Notting Hill Carnival last year, and I, it was How so it good. Yeah, I mean it's very different, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, but it's the same. It's the same people, you know. It's the same blood, the same spirit, the same, same spirit. I felt right at home. Amazing. I felt like I was in Brooklyn. Amazing. Yeah, it was incredible. I had such a good time. So last year in New York, Juve was actually moved to daylight. What is the significance of it being during the night? There's obviously something rich, very rich about Juve, and it happens at night with disregard to sleep. So what is the relevance of that? Well, the beauty of, 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 of... Darkness in Juve is the transition from dark to light. It's, it's euphoric to be covered in filth, whether it's chocolate, baby powder, mud, or pitch oil, or paint, and be on the street and witness the sun rising to the beat of the music, surrounded by tons of other beautiful people and drunk out of your mind. There's just something reflective about that, and it's just like an animalistic kind of wildness to it. Uh-huh. That um, you can't that's, you can't replace. That's just an, a feeling that is so special. You also get to see what people are looking like. You also get to see what you you look like. <laughs> when you cross, you know, like your reflection in the glass. Yeah. On the street, or you know, you see a picture of yourself later on after the event. You know, and uh, just the colors come to life. You know, the blackness. If people are playing jab jab and they're putting on pitch oil on their bodies, the blackness starts to shine under the sunshine. There's just something beautiful about that transition from night to day. Moving into daylight is, is really sad because even though it, that's what happened in New York, in a lot of these places where Juve is commonplace, there's just a lot of violence. Because at the end of the day, Juve is a working class thing, you know? And in these communities, there's a lot of pent-up anger. There's a lot of uh, access to weapons, you know? In London, it's, it's knife violence. Yeah. In the U.S. and in Trinidad. 
it's uh, it's guns, you know. It's, it's a hard reality to accept that in these communities that have this rich tradition that there's, you know, looming danger because people are really, really frustrated with the status quo. And any little thing that, that happens, step on a shoe, you know, bump someone could lead to something. But then also, especially in a place like Trinidad, the Juve experience has become highly policed mm-hmm. by private security companies. So when you're out there in Trinidad, there's a very specific route that you follow just so you remain safe. So it's unfortunately it's justified. There's a good reason for why this is happening. There is. It definitely dilutes the vibe, which is a sad thing. It's been a little while since I've been in New York for, for that weekend for Juve, but I, I would just be sad to be there and see what it's become. Because yeah. it's such a, a, a big part of my teenage years. Yeah. Absolutely. That festivity. And just to see it kind of get diluted like that would break my heart. So last Saturday, October the 6th, you put on the second Juve party that LA has ever seen. It's called Junkyard Juve and it's a night that you started here in LA. Can you tell me a little bit about how it's been received, who it attracts and just tell our audience a bit about this party that you started? I've wanted to bring Juve to LA for a while now because I just think the spirit of it really would help LA loosen up a little bit as far as the underground scene is concerned. Yeah. It's been an idea that's been brewing in my head. When I was breaking down the last rail up in March, the venue owner was telling me that he had a lot of the stuff from the venue stored in his yard. And I said, you have a yard? And he said, yeah, it's a few doors down. So we went and checked out the yard, and now it's like, and it just came to me. Oh, yeah, junkyard drooping. And he was very open to the idea of emptying out the yard and letting me just um, cover everyone in paint. (laughs) So fast forward to June... I decided, hey, let's give it a shot. And it was I didn't know if it would work. You know, I, I, I'm not that connected to the Caribbean community here in L.A. Took the huge risk, put it on, and people came out by the hundreds for this thing. I was so blown away by how many people came and uh, how smoothly it went. The, mo- the most beautiful thing of it all was that it was a really cool combination of people. It was, of course, all of the Caribbean people that live in L.A. A lot of the folks that come to Rayla, I mean, even though the Rayla and everyone was just in it, covered in the paint, we went from two, to, we didn't get to eight, we got to seven. Okay, Because when, you know, when the, uh, when the water truck came out, that's when um, the sound people said, hey, look, it's... The water, my damage on speakers, let's just shut this down. So that was June, and then I just recently did one in, in, on Sunday, Sunday morning at 2 a.m. Uh, last weekend for my birthday. And it was it was it was uh, it was definitely growth from June. Uh huh. This is know? October sixth, so this is right October sixth, my birthday, October seventh. <laughs> you know. So the fact that this party, so in LA, a lot of parties end at two. So the fact that so many people are coming out, even though it's sort of two in the morning, I mean that really speaks to the fact that this party is worth compromising sleep for. 